Let's pray. Father God, we lift up to your word. We thank you for its, its rightness, that it is infallible, that it is effective to the end for which you've given it to us, that we might know you, that we might know you more, that we might know salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us, given to us in ways even beyond which we know or recognize, how you hold us in your hands, how you carry us through, even when the waves should carry us and throw us against the rocks. You are God, and we praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you all read your Bibles, right? Have you ever run across one of those passages that, that make you raise an eyebrow? You read it and you go, what? Either it's strangely worded to us or, or it's not clearly defined. It sounds important, but I'm not really sure how. Or, or it sounds like it's contradictory on the surface reading of it. But, but I know that God doesn't contradict himself. So how does, this, how does this work out? Have no fear. You are not alone. Yes, I said that really loud just to wake you up. In, in each of these cases, scholars, great learned men, make arguments for all kinds of different views. And, uh, of course, the first thing to take into consideration is the context, the immediate context of the passage. Sometimes a passage is just difficult, isn't it? Difficult to understand because of cultural issues that might enter into it, or because God chose not to include every single detail right there in that passage, lest we should end up with a Bible that is infinitely thick, full of details. We never quite make our way to the end of it. I think that sometimes God has placed these passages in his word in order to keep us aware, to keep us on our toes, to keep us in his word, to keep us making those connections. That we would remember that we don't know the whole mind of God, even if we know the entirety of scripture and have it memorized. Or perhaps that we would study his word more deeply in order to gain an understanding of this passage or that passage. A better understanding of anything we read from his word. Well, we have one of those passages before us today. In tonight's passage, we have the baptism of John the Baptist. And this baptism of John was one of repentance and confession of sin. John came preaching in, in chapter 3. We read these verses last week, but in chapter 3 of Matthew, his, his message to them was repent. This is verse 2 of chapter 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we see, starting in verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here we have a, a baptism of confession, a baptism of repentance, a call for the Israelites to, to turn from their sinful ways and to turn towards God. And Jesus comes. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And in our passage today, Jesus says, it is fitting for this to happen. But why? Did Jesus need to repent and confess something? 
what is this passage before us about is what we want to dig into and figure out tonight. So let's uh, keep there at uh, Matthew chapter 3. And I'm going to start in verse 13. Would you please stand up for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 13, says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. A reading of God's Word. Go ahead and be seated. So Jesus goes to John. Was Jesus sinful? Is this why he went to John? Did he have sin that he needed to repent of? From the pages of Scripture, we see that it's evidently not. There's more than enough evidence that no, this isn't the case. Being born of the Spirit, the Father of Jesus was God the Father in heaven. And therefore, there was no sin and no sinful nature passed on to his Son the way we all receive our sin and our sin nature from our Father. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 reminds us that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he remained without sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Over and over, Scripture reminds us Jesus, our Savior, is without sin. Even Pontius Pilate found him guiltless, saying that Jesus had done nothing deserving death. He was com committing none of the charges that were being held up against him. A Gentile, disinterested in Jewish things, could see that this man was guiltless. And in our passage today, John the Baptist is taken back by the idea, why are you coming to me? I should be baptized by you. Verse 14. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? So why would Jesus get baptized by John? How does this make sense? Many say that this was a baptism of association, that Jesus was relating himself to the people, to the masses, in a way that they could see him do that and, and see him as, as one of them. Or perhaps Jesus was associating himself with the ministry of John the Baptist. So the people could see John came and he, he prepared the paths and then Jesus came from that ministry into his own and, and started ministering with the same message. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And, and these are both great ideas and I'm sure that to some extent 
the baptism of Jesus did accomplish both of those things, which are good things. But while these things may be fitting, it may be fitting for Jesus to associate himself with the people, and it may be fitting for Jesus to associate himself with the ministry of John the Baptist, I don't see where Scripture necessitates that either of those things are fulfillment of all righteousness. Jesus gives us his reason for going to this baptism in verse 15. Verse 15, Jesus answered John, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's Jesus' reason for this baptism, to fulfill all righteousness. But what does that mean? To fulfill, as Matthew has used it already in this book, is to complete or to achieve a demand, a claim, or a promise. To fulfill is to complete or achieve a demand, a claim, or a promise. And righteousness at this point, at this time, was found under the law, wasn't it? If one was truly able and desirous to perform every duty and task morally and tangibly from their heart and shown out in their lives. They would be righteous before God under the law. Thus far in the book of Matthew, Matthew has given us a running theme of the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus Christ and all the things that happened around him. Look with me at chapter 1, starting at verse 22. Matthew gives us a genealogy, and then he describes the birth of Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And so the word of God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The scribes and the chief priests come and tell Herod where the Messiah was to be born, where the king was to be born, and there again we see the Old Testament scriptures fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 17 then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Again, Old Testament scripture, fulfilled in Christ. Chapter 3, in those days, starting at verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The Old Testament prophecy fulfilled around Jesus Christ in the person of John the Baptist. And we also hear Jesus himself in the book of Matthew telling us that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 5, 
starting at verse 17, if you want to flip a couple pages over. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he was, and Jesus was determined to do this down to its last detail. Every last bit to be fulfilled exactly as it should be. To fulfill all righteousness. So I think to understand why Jesus went to John and his words to fulfill all righteousness, to understand what that means, I think we need to go back to the Old Testament and see what that says about baptism and this washing with water. In the Old Testament, we find washing with water associated with the washing away of sin, with the washing away of uncleanness, like that of a leper. In Leviticus chapter 14, verse 8, says, and he who is to be cleansed, the leper, shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. Or in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, God says to Israel, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. But we already know, don't we, that Jesus was without sin and therefore did not have to submit to that kind of a washing. But we also find another washing in the Old Testament. And, and this washing is in the consecration of priests for service to God, that they might be able to serve in the temple before God. Exodus chapter 40. Then you shall bring Aaron, this is God speaking to Moses, then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This washing and anointing admitted them into a perpetual priesthood, making them ready to serve and offer sacrifices before God on behalf of the people. Could it be? that the fulfilling that Jesus spoke of was his proper admission as a priest for his people, that washing that prepared him for that. To enter into a service as a priest, somebody would have to be between 30 and 50 years old, according to Numbers chapter 4. In Luke chapter 3, verse 23, Luke tells us that Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. According to the passage we just read from Exodus, the priests had to be washed. And we see here, Jesus washed with water. 
verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up out of the water. According to that same passage in Exodus, the priests were then anointed with oil. And here in our passage today, we see Jesus anointed not with oil, but with the Spirit of God. Verse 16 again. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Well, that was the Spirit. That wasn't oil. Isaiah 61 Uh, Verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Isaiah associating the the giving of the Spirit with God's own anointing. Jesus read that very scripture in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 stating that it was fulfilled in himself. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter is speaking. He says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. So we see Jesus, a man of about 30 years old, being washed with water, being anointed by the Holy Spirit. At the end of Numbers chapter 6, we hear a vocal blessing declared to be declared over the sons of Aaron, Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 27, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And here in our passage, the Father says, verse 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, those are some nice Bible gymnastics, aren't they? But why would Jesus need to be washed? Why would Jesus need to be anointed? Why would Jesus have to be a priest? In the book of Hebrews, and in accord with Old Testament prophecy, Jesus is declared to be our high priest. Our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. 
And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Being a priest, Jesus could act on behalf of men in relation to God. He could offer up sacrifices. Being God himself, he was able to be the source of an eternal salvation of all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest, able to mediate between God and men after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews saw this in Psalm 110, verse 4, which in Messianic prophecy says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's speaking of the Messiah. And this is significant to us. Not only because it fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, but because having been set apart as a high priest, Jesus is set apart to offer those sacrifices before the Lord. Jesus is enabled to offer the sacrifice that establishes the new covenant that was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How can our sins be remembered no more unless they have been completely and perfectly dealt with? A perfect sacrifice to cover all of our sins for all time, past, present, and future. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal salvation. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The God-man gave himself up in our place, on our behalf, for us, a perfect sacrifice, sinless, of both equal and eternal value, given in accord with the law and in fulfillment of the prophets. Jesus Christ fulfilled all righteousness down to its smallest detail, being set apart as a high priest, washed with water, anointed by the Spirit and given the blessing of the Father. All three persons of the Trinity present in that place, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
and in being so anointed and being so washed and being so set apart, he was enabled to present the perfect sacrifice on our behalf once for all. What does all of this mean for us? It's a great study, but what does this this mean for us? Well, last week, the passage right before this, we looked at the day of the Lord. We looked at that that horrible day of tribulation, of, of judgment. It's an awful day for those who are not righteous. Which would be any single one of us, all of us, apart from a Savior. Any one of us, but by the grace of God. That was the passage before this. And today we look upon the Savior who didn't let a single detail go. We look upon a God who leaves nothing out. No bit of righteousness is ignored, no detail forgotten. That our salvation that we have been given would not fall short. Our righteousness imparted to us by Jesus Christ is as perfect as he is perfect. Anyone who questions him, he will have an answer for. Anyone who accuses him, he will be able to put in their place. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 reminds us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. In Jesus Christ, our salvation is secure, perfect. It is sure. We have been sealed by him who is perfect. In Christ, we don't need to fear that day of judgment that is still on its way. When we look upon such a day, when we look upon such a great salvation that we sit here easy in, we sit here without fear because of the salvation we have, is that good? Are we a glad people that we can look at a coming day of tribulation and judgment and say, I'm good. Is that a good thing? Yeah, it is. It should be. Now, is that something that we keep to ourselves? And Don't tell them. They might actually show up there. Right? Do we just want to keep this for ourselves? Or do we want to offer this to others? Do we want to go out and, and, and share this gospel message with the world because the world won't share the gospel? The world doesn't even get it. But God has opened our eyes, and we do. We understand his word. We know it. We love it, and we rejoice in it. Let's take it out to the world. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you.
For every last word of your word is beautiful, meaningful, special, and given to us that we would understand. So, Father, we thank you for your Spirit's help in opening our eyes to the truth of who you are and what you've done for us. We praise you for your holiness and your perfection and your righteousness that requires that all righteousness be fulfilled. And that you didn't leave a single bit of that out as you sent your son to die in our place to present a perfect sacrifice, sinless and holy. And then impart that to us. What a gift. We praise you, Lord, tonight as a family. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.